Grace and mercy and peace be to you from God our Father, and our Lord, and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As some of you know, even though I am retired, I stay quite busy with a variety of different things. For example, I preached in Lincoln, Illinois a week ago. I'm here today, and I'll be preaching in Lincoln, Nebraska next Sunday, so you're kind of the meat in in the Lincoln sandwich. Uh, But in between, I serve on a number of different boards, and uh, one of them is uh, starting out as president of the Theological Council for Crossways International, and part of the job of the president, and now as I serve as vice president, is to preserve the theological integrity of that Christian publishing company, which is a pretty awesome task. And so a little over a year ago, Myself and another member, he is now currently the president of Crossways International Theological Council, we embarked on doing something uh, which is quite a challenge, and that is to rewrite the lectionary of the church. Now, when I announced that to a few Lutheran pastors, they almost had cardiac arrest, because after all, we have our lectionary. We have it both in the three-year and we have it in the one-year. When I shared it with a Catholic friend, they almost had apoplexy because, oh no, we don't mess with what somebody has told us to preach on every Sunday. Now what we did is came up with a one-year plan, and uh, we initially called it the one-year lectionary. And the purpose was that if a pastor in his congregation so desired, they could actually preach through the Bible in a year, connecting the Old Testament and the Epistle and the Gospel lesson all in one message. Kind of an awesome challenge. I have to tell you that we actually completed it last night, the second part. And we're kind of still in the process of seeing this. Now, I, I say all of that uh, to kind of lead into today's message, which is uh, sometimes you need to connect different texts in the Bible to help you make sense of what's in the Bible. Now, you've all heard the three lessons typically in a church on Sunday, and you probably looked at them, and sometimes you thought, okay, all three of those speak to the same topic. But then some Sundays you look at them, and they kind of go, I didn't see any connection there at all. Well, today I'm going to try to connect the Old Testament and the New Testament. In this message, we need to hold two texts together, because one is actually the key to the other. And we're going to start with this passage you see on the screen now, from Romans chapter 1, verse 17. It says, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Now, you might wonder why we would underline just as it is written and not the just will live by his faith. But notice the writer here, Paul, is actually quoting the Old Testament. Now, where did he find this phrase? The righteous will live by faith. Well, if you look at the next screen, you see it. It all started with Habakkuk. And that's today's message. It all started with Habakkuk. It says, Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Now, every Bible student, every Bible scholar will tell you that this is uh, the central verse of Habakkuk. And I hope you all know who Habakkuk is, because I taught one time and asked Somebody, have you ever heard of Habakkuk? And somebody said, isn't that what you say Gesundheit after? And I suggest that maybe you ought to learn this person's name so that someday when he comes up and introduces himself, you're going to say, oh yeah, I read your book and I especially like chapter 2, verse 4. 
But now, it is not only a central verse, it's probably the most crucial verse, I'm going to say, in the Bible. You can argue with me later. Uh, Here's a verse so important that it actually takes three New Testament books to explain it. This phrase, the just shall live by faith, is quoted not only in Romans 1.17, which we looked at. You can also find it in Galatians chapter 3, verse 11. And you can also find it in Hebrews 10, verse 38. I would suggest to you that it is this text that probably changed the Christian, what we call the Christian world. It first changed a man, and that man changed the world. And most of us know the story of a guy by the name of Martin Luther. You all heard of him? I mean, as Lutherans, you should have heard that name once or twice. He, at one time, he was a rather obscure Catholic monk uh, who entered the monastery. He was trying to set himself free from the heavy burden of guilt that he continually felt because of his sin. And Though he was a very obedient son of the church, uh, he found no rest for his soul, no matter how many prayers he said, no matter how many rosaries he would have gone through, uh, no matter how much fasting or penance or... If you believe all the old stories, how many times he whipped himself in his cell. Uh, his eyes were opened, though, one day when he chanced upon and studied the epistle to the Christians who lived at Rome. And when he got to that passage in Romans chapter 1, verse 17, he pondered the meaning of that because he could remember that it was also connected back into the Old Testament in Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. Now, reflecting on what this text meant, I'm going to take a look at here on the screen what Luther said about this. He said, when by the Spirit of God I understood these words, the just shall live by faith, then I felt born again like a new man. I entered through the open doors into the very paradise of God. See, when Luther found that text, or maybe we should say when that text found Luther... Has that ever happened to you, that a Bible text actually found you? You were reading along and kind of reached out and grabbed you right by the face and pulled you right in? Well, when that happened, it turned his entire life upside down. I mean, no longer was he willing to be this simple little uh, monk at a monastery in Erfurt in Germany. Uh, and once the blazing truth of justification by grace through faith uh, gripped his soul, it ignited a fire in Luther that eventually spread throughout not only Europe, but it has spread all the way through the world to this day. Yet this tiny little phrase, the just shall live by faith, if you go back to the Old Testament, almost comes as an aside. Kind of as if Habakkuk just tossed that phrase in there. Now if you go back and you look at Habakkuk chapter 2, God is in the midst of pronouncing his judgment on these evil, wicked, bad, and nasty Babylonians. These were greedy, arrogant, bloodthirsty, ruthless people. They killed people without remorse. And because they they gave themselves over to every kind of evil, God was telling them that one day you will be destroyed. But that day was a long way off when Habakkuk pronounced that judgment. Babylon would not be destroyed for another 70 years. They still had a lot of nastiness left in them and a lot of nastiness to do. So let me ask you this question. What do you do while you watch bad men steal? What do you do when you see evil people kill? What do you do when you see people around the world beheading other people? 
Now, I'd suggest to you that that could be ripped from today's headlines, couldn't it? So what do you do when evildoers come to power? Hey, the just shall live by faith. What do you do when your prayers go unanswered? Not just in days, but weeks and months. Again, I would say, I'd remind you, the just shall live by faith. What do you do when all of your dreams turn to ashes? Hey, the just shall live by faith. See, when all you see in the future, on every hand, the righteous need to remember that God is still on the throne. I remember the last several elections when people Facebooked me or messaged me the next day and said, what do you think that we, we elected so-and-so? And I said, hey, God is still on the throne. I should have added, and the just will live by faith. See, how much did Habakkuk know about Martin Luther? Nothing. How much did he know about the Great Reformation? Well, he, he knew nothing at all. He just understood these words entirely in the context of his times, that those people who fell back and listened and remembered the covenant that God had made with his people through Moses, that as they were faithful to that covenant, they would be found just, they would live. See, more than 600 years later, after Habakkuk, the Holy Spirit moves Paul to quote these words to prove that the gospel it was no innovation, but actually the gospel had been talked about already in the Old Testament. And 1,500 years after that, Martin Luther found rest for his soul when he understood the true meaning of those words, the just shall live by faith. Now, you're going to see this passage again in Romans 1.17. This is the verse that changed Luther's life. He said, For in the gospel a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as, it, as it's written here. Again, he's quoting Habakkuk. The righteous will live by faith. See, in the first half of this verse... Paul is explaining here why the gospel is so powerful. I'm going to share with you a few thoughts on this. You'll see this on the screen as well. Why the gospel is so powerful. Here's the first reason. It's because it reveals a righteousness that comes from where? It comes from God, not from within ourselves. Now, that word righteousness, that's a big church word. You know, pastors toss that word around a lot. I, for the longest time, I thought, well, that's a really big word. I have no idea what that meant took me a long time to figure out that in a way it kind of meant right living and right thinking and right doing. But it's a right living, right thinking, right doing that comes from God and not from within myself. Literally, that word righteousness comes from the courtrooms of the ancient world. It means to declare not guilty and to declare somebody innocent of all charges. Do you know that actually happened already today? Did you know that? Is through confession and repentance. You are declared not guilty. You're innocent of all charges. See, if you are righteous in God's eyes, you can stand before him and be declared not guilty. As a person who works a lot in prison, I, I, know, I know plenty of guys who would love to be able to hear those words, not guilty. You're pardoned. All is forgiven. Go and sin no more. Now, I wonder how many of you this morning would say, you know, I'm good enough on my own to get to heaven. Anybody here would be willing to stand up and defend that statement? That you're good enough on your own to get to heaven? 
Well, to that I could probably respond that clear conscience is the result of a poor memory. <laughs> you probably don't remember everything you've done in thought, word, and deed. See, the only people who think that they are good enough uh, to go to heaven are people who don't really know how bad they really are. See, righteousness is what we need, but righteousness is not what we have. Therefore, God, knowing that we would never be righteous on our own, that we'd never ever be good enough on our own, provided a righteousness that came from him. It came from heaven above. It's not earned or deserved, but it is given to us by God as a free gift. Now, the reformers back in the day of Luther, again, we will make another connection here, is they talked about an alien righteousness. Now, what on, he- what on earth is alien righteousness? Well, the term alien means from another place. Now, God willing, uh, my wife and I hope to be in Nepal and India sometime in November. I've been invited to teach uh, some Bible studies in Nepal, and then we just want to go back to where I serve as Vice President for Christ for India and, and kind of revisit that. And I know that when I go there, I will be considered an alien. I am not Nepalese. I am not Indian by any stretch of the imagination. I'm an alien because I come from a different place. Now, to say that, to say that we are saved by an alien righteousness really means that our righteousness came from another place. It comes not from within us, but because of our, not because of our good deeds, but it comes from outside of us. So how can a guilty sinner be declared righteous from another place? Well, the answer is he can find it only in Jesus. That's the alien righteousness that saves sinners. Now, you see, the second reason here that the gospel is so powerful is that righteousness from God is received only by faith. I've had a few interesting conversations with people who thought they could earn their way into heaven. And and I said, you know, I'm kind of a bottom line sort of guy. How many good works does it actually take to get into heaven? I mean, can you picture this, that someday you die, and let's say you do stand at the gate of heaven, and, and Jesus is standing there, and he says, well, welcome, what's up? I don't know that Jesus would say it that way, but he might. He might say, what's up? Um, and you say, well, I'm here to get into heaven. Um, why should I let you into my heaven? Well, because I've done... All these good works in my day. I, I was, for heaven's sake, I was a teacher, I was a pastor, I taught Sunday school. A lot of good works. Jesus says, okay, let's look you up here. What's, what's your last name? Oh, okay, it is Sippy. <laughs> Comma, Jeff. Oh, you're Jeff Sippy. Oh, okay. Wow, Jeff, I can't believe the good works you've done. There's page after page after page of good things you did in your life. In fact, it comes up to 114,375,285. You missed it by one. (laughs) See, that's the problem. If you think you're going to do it on your own, it will never, ever be enough. Our text says that righteousness is received by faith from first to last. That's what Romans says. Everyone who is saved is saved the same way. It is by faith alone, grace alone, scripture alone. It is by faith always. Faith alone, faith always. So how can you and I get right with God? Well, the answer is simple. By receiving 
the righteousness of God that comes only by him. See, we need this because we're all in the same boat. And guess what? Our boat is leaking. The Bible says in Romans 3, 23, you all know this passage, I'm sure. There is no difference. Why? For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now, I hope you heard that little phrase. There's no difference. There's no difference between rich and poor. No difference between old and young. No difference between black or white or male or female. We all, every last one of us, stand condemned by our sin. And all of us are under the judgment of God because of that. Now, you all may sin differently than I do. Our sins are not all the same. But we were still all sinners nonetheless. And we were still in the same boat. And from time to time, my boat seems like it's got a pretty gigantic leak in it. See, if God doesn't do something, our boat is going to go down. We have a big problem with this because deep down inside of every last one of us, if we are honest with ourselves, we secretly believe that God makes deals. You see it on television all the time. Somebody's in trouble and they suddenly, oh, I've got to go there and talk to the big guy upstairs. God, if you take care of this, I'll be back in church next Sunday, I promise. There's a Greek word for that, baloney. Or in Hebrew, I think it's hogwash. We think we can make a deal with God. We think that if we'll only try hard enough and come to enough church services or do our best or clean up our act or get rid of these friends or play by the rules or treat people right or put X amount of money in the, in the offering plate, that God up in heaven is going to look down and say, you know, he's not so bad at all, let him in. But remember some friends, how would you describe Jesus? I mean, Jesus was pure, Jesus was holy, Jesus was perfect in every way. The Bible says even though he was tempted by everything we were ever tempted by, he never, ever, never, ever, ever, never, ever sinned. I don't think there were that many in the text, but there are at least one. All of us fall so far short, we cannot even begin to be compared to Jesus. He is the only righteous person to have ever walked the face of this earth. And what did we do when he did? We crucified him. You and I, we crucified him. His reward for doing God's will was death on a bloody Roman cross. That's what our sins did to him. But here's the wonder of grace at work. From the murder of a perfect man came God's plan to rescue all of humanity, and that means you and me. See, if you want to get to heaven, you need to learn this lesson. God does not make deals with sinners. Does not make deals with sinners. If you come to God based on your good works, you're going to be turned away because you will never, ever reach 100%. But if you come to God based on the righteousness that was provided by Jesus... As you are moved by the Spirit to receive it, you will be accepted. See, there's a third reason why the gospel is also so powerful. It's by the righteousness of the gospel, men and women are declared just in the eyes of God. And to prove this point, I mean, even Habakkuk, when Paul quotes Habakkuk, he says, and remember the Old Testament, Habakkuk knew this, the just shall live by faith. 
See, it was this text, Romans 1.17, that ultimately shook Luther to the core and brought him to faith in Jesus. I want to show you a letter here that was written by his son, Paul. Uh, it was Luther's youngest son. In the year 1544, my late dearest father, in the presence of us all, narrated the whole story of his journey to Rome. He acknowledged with great joy that in that city, through the Spirit of Jesus Christ, he had come into the knowledge of the truth of the everlasting gospel. It happened this way. As he repeated his prayers on the Lateran staircase, the words of the prophet Habakkuk came suddenly to his mind. The just shall live by faith. Thereupon he ceased his prayers, returned to Wittenberg, and took this as the chief foundation of all his doctrine. From that unlikely beginning came the Protestant Reformation and the battle cry, Sola Fide, by grace alone. Faith alone, not by the works of the law. Faith alone, not by obedience to the church or some denomination. Faith alone, not by any human righteousness. Faith alone, not by baptism or having X number of sacraments. Faith alone, not by the works of charity. It's faith alone, plus nothing and minus nothing. See, faith is the complete reliance upon another person to do that which you cannot do by yourself. Now, I had somebody ask me one time, how much faith does it take to get to heaven? And my answer was, it kind of depends. The answer is not much and all you got. See, if you're willing to trust Jesus with as much faith as you happen to have, you'll be saved. But if you're thinking that maybe you need to do something, you're going to practice that Jesus plus stuff again, you need to forget it. Because saving faith is putting your trust in Jesus and putting your trust in him alone. To do that, you have to stop trying to save yourself. See, someone has said that believing in Jesus means uh, trusting him so much that if, you, if he can't take you to heaven, you aren't going to go there. I like that. See, if Jesus can't take me to heaven, then I'm never going to make it. Uh, the only way I can do it is I have to go all in on him. I, I don't, honestly, I don't have plan B. I don't have plan B as, as far as a way of getting to heaven. I'm all in with Jesus. I hope you are too. See, sometimes people say, well, don't put all your eggs in one basket. That might be good advice when it comes to investing your money, but it's terrible advice for investing your soul. I mean, it's okay to put all your eggs in one basket if your basket's name is Jesus. Now, I want to wrap this up uh, by saying this as plainly as I can. You'll see two things on the screen. Some good news and some bad news here. And we have to start with the bad news first. You have no other hope of heaven outside of Jesus Christ. Good works cannot save you. Church membership cannot save you. Giving money to the church cannot save you. Keeping the Ten Commandments cannot save you. Nothing you can do will make the least bit of difference concerning your eternal salvation. If you're trusting in your good life, if you're trusting in your religion or your denomination or the church you belong to or the fact that everybody in your family has been Lutheran since the day of Jesus, someday you're going to be sadly 
and eternally disappointment. Disappoint. That's the bad news. You ready for some good news? There is good news. There is always good news. Those who put their trust in Jesus Christ are saved forever. I think that's absolutely wonderful. How much how better can you get? That's the real meaning of the just will live by faith. Now, I said earlier that we're all in the same boat. We really are. We're all sinners desperately in need of God's grace. See, the death of Jesus, though, paid. It was the full payment for all of our sins, past, present, and future. What we could not do for ourselves, God has done for us through the death of his son. You see, the only thing left is to believe in him, to accept it. I don't know how many times I've ended sermons by saying, friends, run to the cross. That's where we need to run. Continue run to the cross. I mean, turn your sins down. Lay your self-will down and instead lay hold of the Son of God who loves you and who died for you. Throw yourself completely on Jesus for your salvation. If you trust in him with all your heart, Scripture tells us, he will never turn you away. See, it really comes down to just six simple words. The just shall live by faith. That's the message we preach. This is the text that changed the world. And it all started with Habakkuk 2,600 years ago. May God bless you as you live by faith. Amen. We continue our worship as we gather together our tithes and our offerings.